It's time for building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. Tabletop game design. The the end of the episode that's when it technically ends hello and welcome to building the game a documentary podcast today is september 5th and you're listening to episode 535 as always i am your host jason here today joined by one of my awesome co-hosts jamie sabriel flez how you doing today hello oh i'm so good it's so good to talk to you again it is it is it has been a minute as they say as the kids say one Actually, i don't know minute. that the kids say that but People I know uh-huh. say that. Right. <laughs> Which probably old. means they're not kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you've uh you've been keeping yourself busy over there and uh well, I just blanked out. Where do you live? You live in the east uh, <laughs> in the east. I do. In the east. The not the far east though, nor the middle east, uh, according to most maps and social studies classes here in right, the United right. States. I live in the um, middle west. In the, United the Middle West. <laughs> um, I wish I lived in Middle Earth sometimes, but anyway. Uh, me too. I... Me too. <laughs> I I live in Boston. I'm in New I England. Was, as soon as you started, I was going to say you're in Boston because you've talked about Boston Fig before. Uh, yep. And you know, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, in between the last time we chatted and now, Boston has had the hottest summer it has had on average in recorded history since 1880 when worldwide temperatures started being recorded, where we had a three and a half week long heat wave where every single day was over 90 degrees and I was suffering. Yeah, that oh sounds my. not fun. Ugh. Um, though I see you drinking from a cup that presumably looks like something hot, so... Um, I have my hot tea on the left and my ice water on the right, and I'm sitting in an air conditioned room. So don't worry oh, for my sanity funny. or health. <laughs> well, maybe yeah, for my sanity, but not because of this. Right, 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 right. Plenty of other things to think about. Around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So uh, a hot Boston summer, as they as no one says. Um, uh, well, <laughs> the kids say the kids say it. The kids have to say something. They say something, right? They say yes, things in general. They do. They say a lot. Someday we'll learn what they are. Yes. I have to say, though, I mean, I think we should all remember that, you know, uh, definitely this super crazy heat streak in, uh, you know, in uh, Boston. That's that's just random. That's got nothing to do with any sort of climate thing. And oh I'm sure it's just random. Right. You know, it's just. Yeah, yeah. This is random. Total outlier. <laughs> I yeah. I am pleased to report, though, that at least there was not the hottest day in Boston ever. That happened in 1915, and we didn't break that record. We just uh-huh, broke uh-huh. every other record related to average heat in a summer, like ever. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, our summers here in Michigan um, have. I, I haven't looked at the specific data around it, like to see like if we've had like the hottest things on record or or such. But I, I know that we've had consistent like hot days like 80s plus consistently we'll go for a week with like 90s plus and it's just stupid Blah. like it's yeah. just dumb um no one, especially no because it. we get hammered so hard with winter i guess you do as well but like yeah. i like all four seasons but i would like them to be muted a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> can we just calm down seasons right could we yeah, have like I, uh... a week of snow and like a week of like 90 and then like everything else is just like 6570 like oh my god i would be super into that i i mine is like 48 and foggy because i'm a weirdo i that's my favorite i um i actually move move the uk over there with that 
I have definitely I've strongly considered it that or Montreal uh, yeah, I, yeah. Um, I was astonished I've lived in Boston basically my whole life um, and I was astonished that in my adult life we finally finally had an autumn that lasted an entire season uh, instead of just two and a half weeks um, that is nice that was a couple years ago yeah I, I forget exactly when it was it was like two years ago or so but maybe it'll happen again in my lifetime I dare to dream so here is the most important question to ask you about the heat in Boston is. Okay. The legend, the legend of, you know, the molasses flood, which was not, oh which boy. was not a legend, but, but they say <laughs> yeah. on hot days, you can still smell molasses. That's, that's not true, right? I'm going to keep that a mystery. I think. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, for anybody that doesn't know about the great molasses flood, I suggest you look it up uh, because yeah, 21 people died and 150 people were injured uh, when in 1919 uh, uh, a molasses vat broke or something and Tank? flooded yeah. the streets. And um, yeah, yeah, it's it was uh, like a water tower, but full of molasses, basically. Yeah, yeah. Is, is my understanding that um, I am trying to understand the necessity of a water tower full of molasses. <laughs> Boston's like, major export for an, an amount of time was okay, molasses okay. and seaweed. I'm, I'm feeling the Jeff Goldblum vibes of your scientists were so sure that they could. They never stopped to think if they should. <laughs> uh, and the answer is, of course, they shouldn't have. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. I, uh, yeah. I don't know if they were a if it was actually a major export. History is probably my weakest subject. Oh, in you did just academia. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh yes and i'm not yeah. making light of a tragedy but um as tragedies go that is really a weird one uh yeah. to have happened so true. yeah yeah history is well, weird well hey uh we uh have a super fun topic to talk about yeah uh, that starts out before i introduce it with a congratulations to you Thanks. Uh, because recently you told us um that you um Got a new gig, uh, mm -hmm. a gig as a lead developer on a game that is mm -hmm. uh, um, under it's so it's not a game you designed. Obviously, you're just developing right. it um, yep. for a company. And um, so you're you're working with that company that just happened uh, about a month ago. I want to say you told us or a little less yep. than that, maybe. Yeah, a little less than that, actually. Yeah, I signed the contract like two weeks ago or so, two or three mm -hmm. weeks ago. Mm hmm. When I was at Gen Con, I actually ran into, right after you had told us, I ran into um, one of the people that you're working with um, hmm. at Gen Con. Um, and, uh, and that person uh, is, is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, they were talking about that. So, because um, I actually had never met them in person. So, yeah. Uh, and we're purposely being secretive here um, because Jamie <laughs> isn't sure what all they can say. So, we're going to avoid the company, the specifics about the game, but what we are yeah. going to talk about is uh, this seemed like a really unique opportunity. You know, we, we talk about first time designers. We've talked about development on the show a ton, but one of the perspectives we've never had the opportunity to have is a first time developer. Um, you know, I mean, obviously you've worked on your own game. You've done a ton <laughs> of development on your own game. Yeah. But and as lots a of first... play testing, like at right. the online spots and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But being hired to actually develop, be the lead developer on a game um, by a company, that's a first. 
And yep. um, so you and I chatted and, and both felt like it was a really unique opportunity to um, to talk about, you know, your expectations on that and, you know, what you understand you'll be doing. And um, yeah, and then hopefully, you know, later go back and talk about uh, this will be quite a while from now, but to come back mm-hmm. with all the information about the game and be able to talk about, you know, the ins and outs of how it actually went compared to expectations. And, um, and I'm really excited about that just because I, I think this is uh, a window into development that we don't normally get to see. So yeah, I appreciate you being willing to, to, to share it. Talk about it. It's super cool. Um, so yeah, so first let me go over what exactly I'm going to be doing. And yeah, like yeah. you said, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of the game or the company just in case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea here is that the game has already been pitched to and signed by the publisher. So mm-hmm. it's not designed in the designer is a separate entity successfully pitched and signed the game to the company, the publisher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yep. I am being brought on as a second round of outside development work where Mm -hmm. the first round of development was done by a big development studio. Um, and just in case I won't name them either. Um, but I've known them for a long time and they're super cool. Um, they've worked on a lot of big stuff. And so they came in to polish the game in general and like get Mm -hmm. it to a better spot in general. Mm -hmm. I am Mm -hmm. coming on specifically to, uh, so now the game, it's a two to six player game. Well, right now it's a three to six player game, and I'll loop back to that in a sec. So it's a three <laughs> right, to right, six. Right, right, yeah, right. That awkward number. Player game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's a three to six player game, and the previous developers, the designer, the publisher, and also myself, because I've played it, we all feel it's in a great spot in the three to six player game, mm-hmm, with one mm-hmm. exception, which I'll also loop back to in a sec. I am being brought on as the lead developer for the game to do two things i am going to be making the two-player version of the game to make mm-hmm. it as cool as the three to six player game mm-hmm. and i'm going to be working on the three to six player version of the game um basically it's like the game is pretty lightweight and pretty easy and straightforward for you know any hobby gamer to learn and they're also aiming for a kind of you know family game lighter weight kind of market mm-hmm. um the issue is that you learn all the rules and it's like, cool, it's easy. Now, what do I do strategically? Oh my gosh, I can do anything because players start with symmetrical starts. And so right. I'm being brought on to develop basically a way to handhold new players into the two main ways you win the game. Um, right. So that is that is my duty. So I'm doing both of those things. And the contract is, you know, started a couple weeks ago and will be ending at the end of October... Yeah, end of October. Um, So I'm going to be working with them for a couple of months. And I am the lead developer under mentorship of the previous developers who have a ton of experience. And they're basically like kind of my employees, quote unquote, in that I can summon them for playtesting and advice whenever I want. And Mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. kind of a mentorship role. Right, Um, right. Yeah, because obviously they have a ton of experience um, with doing the the development work. So. They sure do. Um, And so I'm in good hands there because everyone recognizes that, like, we are on purpose thrusting you into this lead development role, even though you have no official, like, uh, how do I, what's, um, the words are failing me. I have no, like, 
nothing I can put on my resume that I was like, I was going to say, there's nothing on your resume for a developer (laughs) job. Yes. Right. But uh, I have enough sort of social experience because I've been playtesting for a few years for a few years and I'm a moderator in Protospiel. I'm a moderator in Break My Game and I'm super Mm -hmm. active in the communities Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Um, So part of this is they know I'm in a little bit over my head and Mm -hmm. they're purposefully doing this to like help mentor me into being a good lead developer of a project. Um, and I'm right, also working right. directly with the designer. So I am I am the lead developer, but the designer has like final veto power. Of Interesting, interesting. And that is not that something are. you see in every relationship there. You right. know? I mean, yeah. I, I've been in a number of positions where, you know, with both, where you'll have a publisher that says, listen, you know, I'm not going to do this unless you're happy, right? Your name's on the box. I want you to sign off on it. And I'm always very cautious to say, yeah, but you're paying for it. So like in the end, like (laughs) we need to come together on that. You know, and I've had other publishers say, hey, listen, we're making these changes. Um, We're just going to run it by you and make sure you're good with it. Um, And in those cases, I feel like my job is just to say, "Um, yes, I think that's great. Or, hey, here are some thoughts I have about that that could be concerning. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or C, the one that's never happened to me um is hey um i'm not comfortable with that i'm i'm not comfortable with being a part of that game uh i think that's more of a a theme change in a way that suddenly made you feel very uncomfortable um i think most companies uh that we would choose to work with are better than that uh Mm -hmm. but you never know um so you know uh so i think it's really cool that they're giving you know some of that final power back to the designer. I think that that says a lot for the studio you're working with. That's, that's cool. So. Yeah. yeah. And I think all of these methods have their own pros and cons um, Mm -hmm. for sure. And I'm going to, I'm definitely going to dive into, you know, the relationship with the designer that I have so far. Um, I mean, overall it's positive, but less from a, like, this is negative and more because it's not negative. It's positive, but it's also really interesting. Um, And it's, it's making me dive into a lot of pieces of my brain that I didn't think I would need to really. Actually, mm-hmm. let's talk about that first since we're here. All right. So the designer is final veto power. So I don't have total freedom. I kind right. of have freedom. Um, it was stated when I was hired that like, you know, the assumption, that, you know, we have these expectations. Company is saying this. Company is like, uh, we have these expectations. Here are the two things we're hiring you for. And we want you to keep these things in mind. You know, uh, yep, you know, yep. accessibility is a big one. And um, another big one is not going over budget in terms of what components I potentially, I potentially add. Right, 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 right. Which sounds so logical when you say it out loud. Mm-hmm. And then when you start thinking about it, it's like, mm, what exactly? Like, I am learning a ton of the nitty gritty of what different add-ons to a game cost, which is something I already wanted to know for my own self-publishing yeah, yeah. or stuff like that and so you know i'm always excited between... to hear about that from publishers i'm always like tell me more like i want to yeah, know yeah. the little bitty stuff about that because as a designer i think it's it's just really useful as a designer but yes if you want to publish your own stuff that is like a free college course right there and i <laughs> you want to take them up on that you know yeah yeah exactly and so uh actually i'll dive into that first while we're here and then i'll talk about the interesting the more kooky, interesting stuff later. So. Can I throw out a one one thing that I was thinking about with the designer, um, yes. your relationship with the designer? Are you going to talk about that later? I am. Okay. Well, then we'll come back to that. Then I have I have a few thoughts on what that relationship 
quote should look like right i mean and i should as in like as my suggestions (laughs) for that um we know how much i I hate the word should (laughs) right 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 i think what it what a positive version of it can look like how's that how's that sound better i felt better about that i don't like saying should either um so (laughs) yeah so go go right ahead go right ahead yeah so in terms of the in terms of the component thing so all right so i have divvied it up into a few different sections. So the thing that I'm testing right now, I'm working on the one-on-one game first because I have a lot more experience there because my my whole wheelhouse basically is two-player games. I do have like two to four-player games, but I work on the two-player game version of mm-hmm, my other mm-hmm. prototypes first. So first I'm working on the 1v1 game where I'm just adjusting rules and components as opposed to adding more components and it's just like the difference between adding another board versus printing a board double-sided and flipping it over for the two-player game that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Um, yep and changing core rules to fit the two-player game this was actually inspired by a game that i got from a, a kickstarter i backed recently uh i of course i'm so sad i'm blanking on the name of the company and the designer but the game is lizard wizard it's by the same people that did raccoon tycoon um i i don't know anything about their games but i like how they name them yeah yeah i gosh man i i need to be uh, better at remembering who designed what but forbidden uh, games is the name of the company forbidden games yeah forbidden games so so i played lizard wizard as a two-player game and i think I want to try it again as a multiplayer game before I get the full scope. But they did something really interesting in the two-player game, which is kind of inspiring this first path of, I'm going to try changing rules before I add components. So Lizard Wizard, it's kind of a tableau builder on a bunch of different angles. And one of the things you get is wizard allies. And the way that you get the wizards, as opposed to other things, is an auction system. So you say, all right, cool. I want to hire this wizard. I'm going to spend, you know, X mana. And then it's an auction mm-hmm. where it's like, all right, and now we're all going to go around and we can keep beating each other uh, until everyone except you passes and then you pay whatever you bid and you get the dude. In a two-player game, there is no auction. We're not going back and forth. If you and I are playing the two-player game and I say, Jason, my turn, I'm going to, I'm pointing at this guy and I'm like, I want to hire this dude and I'm going to pay 14. You could say, all right, I'm going to pay 15 and take him from you. And that's it. I don't uh-huh. get to out, I don't get to outbid right, you. Right. Yeah. Your initial in, bid has to be good enough that makes me either not want it or only be willing to do it out of spite or really want it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the flip side is that if you outbid me because I initiated the action, if you outbid me, I get another turn and it can be to try for another wizard uh, or it could mm-hmm. be any of the other actions in the game. Right. And I right. thought that was super, super cool because it doesn't make the action economy uneven. And there right. are just so many cool layers to the mind game of how much you're gonna, uh, you're going to try to initially bid on it when you initiate that action in a two player game. And mm-hmm. in the two player game that I played, I pulled off a bunch of cool things that made me feel like I was very smart and cool, such as, like, all right, I know my opponent has about it. Mana is the resource you use to hire wizards. So I'm like, all right, cool. I have like, I have 20 something mana and I know my opponent, Tucker, has like 16 or 18 mana. So I'm going to say, all right, I want this dude and I'm going to pay nine. And Tucker's like, I also want that dude. So I'm going to pay 10. Mm-hmm. 
And now I'm like, all right, cool. Now I'm going to buy this dude for nine and I know you can't outbid me. And now right, I got right. a discount on the dude I actually wanted. Uh, right, stuff like right. that is really cool. Um, and possibly, possibly force the hand of the other player to buy something that they didn't want as bad because they really yes. thought you wanted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's... Yep. Yep, that stuff is like that a... is really cool. And then there's also just like there was a a point where Tucker was just throwing mana around, like uh, Tucker was rolling in it, and I was not. And so Tucker was like, "All right, I know you. I don't remember exactly how much mana you have. I know you have less than twenty, so I'm just gonna bid twenty on this dude I need." I'm like, "Damn, all right. I guess I just don't get that <laughs> well dude. done." Yeah, but so... likely Tucker overpaid then, right? Because it was just right. about knowing that you couldn't take it from them. Yeah, it's it is a it's such an interesting change it's like such a simple change in the rule book but it mm -hmm. leads to such cool and weird and interesting uh different gameplay loops in mm -hmm. in the two-player version versus the multiplayer version but the whole rest of the game plays the same and i was like that is such a cool concept to do it that it way it really is it really is yeah so yeah. that's what i'm thinking about in in this game and of course i can't get into details but i've i've tried some initial concepts of like all right the, the core game is like nine rules and if we change one that's a pretty drastic feeling yeah that's a cascade of changes right because yeah. right and so i'm i'm now sort of like playing with that putty in my hands myself and oh my mm -hmm. gosh it's so cool i strongly <laughs> recommend it to everyone listening if you have a game that works in multiplayer doesn't work in two player or vice versa try try this out it it will build your chops as a designer. It's uh, it's making my brain hurt in a way that yeah, is yeah. very... That is, I think the transition from two-player only to more and from less than, or from more than two-player down to two-player uh, mm -hmm. is, is one of the hardest transitions you'll make in designing a game, right? Because, you yeah. know, to add a fifth or sixth player many times, many times is just component-based, right? That's why yeah. so many Kickstarters have a add a fifth player or add a sixth player as in a, as a stretch goal, right? Because it's yep. saying yep. get to a certain level, we'll throw more components in here for you. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, yeah, the the other the other change there that's really tough. Like that takes a lot of in, in some games. Other games, it's easier. Um, but I I, um, I don't know the games that I've worked on. I feel like it's always tough to make that choice. I think the yeah. worst, though, to me, the worst is when you go to a publisher and say, I have a two player game and they say I need it to play two to four. You're like, right. yeah. <laughs> that is that to me, because I, I'm for myself and I think a lot of other designers who like two player games and you probably speak to this, too, um, yep. with your game um, fight sequence is that like when you design a two player experience, you are specifically crafting that two-player experience to be be designed for you guessed it two people right <laughs> back and forth yeah. um yep. and that's very different so um so i think yeah. it's great that you're you're searching for tools to figure out the best way to do that and i think that's awesome yeah thanks and it's the thing about it to, i want to elaborate a little tiny bit because i think we're on the same page here is uh, the reason why it's such a drastic change, like more so, much more so than adding a fifth or sixth player, is because there are a lot of, it's almost, it's not an entirely different toolbox for two-player games, but there mm -hmm. are a lot of design mechanics that work much better or worse in two-player games. And some of this is subjective. For example, take that mechanics 
in a two player game works super, super well because then it turns into a zero sum sort of situation um, right, right. where I can attack you for three or I can heal myself for four. And one of those might, you know, ostensibly be more one of attractive those to you specifically, right? Depending exactly. on the situation. Yeah. Whereas if it's three players attacking one player for three versus healing myself for four, healing myself for four, or even three, if I heal myself for three, that's way more attractive because it increases my position relative to everyone as opposed to decreasing one person's position right. in relevance to me. Right, right. And so, Yeah, I mean, with a two-player game, I feel like the whole decision is, do I have more hit points than you? then I want to attack you. Do I have less hit points than you <laughs> that I want to, you know, if I can't, if I can't win this turn, then, you know, it's like, it's a pretty easy decision. Yeah. Right. Um, well, it, we're simplifying it a lot. It, anyone who's played right, magic, right. the gathering knows that it's definitely not a simple decision, depending on the game. Uh, games can make it as complicated as they want. You, um, you made a very simple statement. Thank you about, <laughs> I can do this or that. <laughs> But no, yeah, obviously in magic games and stuff, I think you're right. It is completely, um, there are so many more factors that go into it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I get so what yeah. you're saying. <clears throat> so that's the first thing that I'm thinking about is the like changing rules in addition to components. And when I say components, I mean like, you know, all right. So the board, instead of thinking about like can i add another punch sheet that has pieces of a board that i sort of overlay on the normal board instead can we print the board double-sided and we flip it over and yep. it's a totally yep. custom layout for the one-on-one -on -one game and the yep. score track also you flip it over and it's a totally custom thing for the one-on-one -on -one yep. game so i am a huge huge fan of that yeah, um, it comes with its own downsides, of course, because printing more ink costs more money. I don't right. think it's as much money as printing a whole separate like chipboard sheet. It um, is not. But, and, and, right. and obviously the big thing is the box too, right? Like it fits in the box just the same if yep. it's double-sided, whereas if it's two separate boards, may not, you know? Right. And then there's the, the situation here where uh, I think I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can say this. Uh, the board is made up of separate separate board pieces that kind of get shuffled. And so I have heard tell that they may, they may have already wanted to make each board double-sided just to give multiplayer players more choices. But mm -hmm. if I take over some of those boards to be the double-sided is the two-player game, that shuts off that option. So the publisher and the designer might not want to go for that. Right, so right. So that's another yep. consideration. And so the, so that's the one path is like changing existing components and existing rules. Mm -hmm. And then the other path is um, the one-on-one -on -one version being the same. I mean, I'm still thinking about changing rules because I have to change some of them. But uh, right, right. adding additional components to make a little bit more leaning towards these, you know, design tools in the toolbox that work better for two players, mm -hmm. in my opinion, such as take that, such as zero-sum stuff. Yep, yep. Um, and the reason why that's a like the reason why I'm highlighting that so much as a separate path is because I have to worry about the budget for the game. I have to make my anything that I add be as cheap as possible. And right, so I right. want to try to make the same components useful for both the two player game and mm -hmm. the intro version of the group game. Yep. Yep. For sure. So, that is uh, that's always something you're trying to consider. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. And so. 
you know, of course, I'm still kind of far, quote unquote, um, from self-publishing fight sequence. And I've thought mm -hmm. about it a little bit to the extent of like, I'm not going to have a board. I'm not going to have tokens. Instead, everything is just going to be a poker card um, to make it nice and easy. Yep. So I, yep. I understand enough to know that cards are easy. And if everything's a card, that's easier. Um, right, and right. so now I have to think about like the nitty gritty of like, what is a separate tile that punches out of a punch board what is a bunch of those versus one board is that more or less expensive is there room for x amount of tiles separately on the other things that we were already going to punch out and stuff like that and how that alters my development and my ideas and what i try mm -hmm. is right. wild um and this is something where it, br it brings up a really interesting case in break my game a few months ago someone was asking I think it was a couple months ago. I forget exactly when someone asked a newer designer asked like, how much do you consider components and stuff when like, I'm just starting to design a game brand new to this design. Mm -hmm. How much should I be considering components and stuff like that? And my first answer was like, I answered with my gut and I was like, you don't really have to worry about it because you can change it around later. And then a bunch of other designers who I respect and adore were like, mm, I actually disagree. Yeah. because <laughs> I do too. Sudden, yeah, yeah. And so I looped back about an hour later and I was like, I don't know what I was saying. I also right. disagree with what I right, said right, before right. because I absolutely did that with fight sequence where I was like, from the beginning, I was like, okay, cool. Only cards in a rule book, make it cheaper. Um, and from I, like day, I, day one of fight sequence. And um, I think that the, the idea of what you said is actually the correct answer, which is when you first start working on a design, there shouldn't be, if you don't want them, there shouldn't be constraints, right? You should be able to say, right. I'm just going to make this design. It's going to be what I want. But in reality, a lot of times you're specifically looking to design something a certain way with a type of components or so then in those cases, you know, I think that the whole experience, like tying it back to components will tell you like, okay, if I'm going to have a million components, like what kind of game is this going to be? Is it going to be a bigger game? Because if it's going to be a smaller game, then a million components aren't going to be feasible, right? Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But I, I don't think you're wrong, as in I think that, you know, the like I said, the idea behind it, what you're saying is right. But functionally, it's generally not how we have to do it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. In a perfect the... <laughs> world, that would be how we do it. Yeah. Thinking about it now in the future, the spirit of what I was trying to say is don't put those constraints on yourself because if you have certain mechanics that you come up with that you love, mm -hmm. there is absolutely going to be a different way to represent them in your game that will capture right, the right. same spirit without right. additional components. Um, right. So one example is, uh, so we're in the middle of a tabletop mentorship program session. Yes. And I am a mentor of two mentees who are newer designers. And one mm -hmm. of them is making a game about arcades. So it's mm -hmm. a polyomino game about arcades and their original uh, version of it had like okay you buy a game and it goes to your loading dock board and when the game breaks it also goes to the loading dock and then you install it at the start of your next turn and then you score it at the end and i was like that's an additional component it's kind of clunky and you're giving me this feedback that players don't find that very fun or exciting right um so so i would consider <laughs> yeah yeah so it's like even though you want to capture as much realism of working in our in an arcade as you can um consider a different plan wherein you can like get rid of these clunky components and then they came back to me in the next session and they were like yeah so i figured out i can cut the whole loading dock system at all if i just make it so you score at the start of your turn and then you buy stuff at the end of your turn 
Right. And then yep. it's still the element of you have to wait a turn to score an arcade because it has to like generate hype and interest and then yes. Yep. Stuff. And I'm like, that is super awesome. And that is exactly the kind of stuff that I'm talking about here. Yep. Where, you know, there's always a way to capture the feeling that you want, even though mm -hmm. you are altering stuff about the game. And that's the key. And I will absolutely be looping back to that in terms of fight sequence later on in this recording. <laughs> so put a pin in that. Right, um, right. So yeah, so that's that's how I've been approaching this process of development. And another thing that I'm finding super interesting is, you know, this is the first time I've been a developer for someone else's game. Um, before this, I have only ever done one-off play tests for people, both mm -hmm. in terms of organized stuff and also just like someone pinging me being like, yo, do you want to play test my game? And it's like, yeah, sure, I do. And it's such a wild difference in that i expect to like okay cool i'm gonna set aside this many hours for this play test and this is the teach and then we do the game and then i'm gonna give feedback uh mm -hmm. and then that's that's the whole thing but in a longer development it's there's much less expectation to give all your feedback at once is what i'm feeling that's mm -hmm. super interesting and also it's just the concept of like what I am prioritizing is different because in, in a play test, in a one-off play test, I'm trying to look at everything and take notes on everything. And in development, you know, day one of play testing the game post development contract, I'm like, I absolutely can't look at everything all the time um, because mm -hmm. that's just not feasible. And I'm going to be playing this game, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60, however many times. Thousand times. <laughs> now, well, I'm probably not going to play it a thousand times in two I'm months. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, because, uh, you know, time is f fun and weird. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's been super interesting is just like how my priorities have shifted mm -hmm. and how much more I feel empowered to stress test something as opposed mm -hmm. to when I play test and I'm trying to get a more general overview of stuff. Absolutely. I definitely, yep. yeah, I definitely still like when I play test, especially in group games, I tend to like try to identify the most offbeat or oddball strategy and stress test that because I mm -hmm. assume the other players are going to be going more of a general sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's more of a like a team player kind of thing where I can rely on the other play testers to access different parts of the game and provide different information to sort of plug the holes in my own play testing and feedback. But in development, right. It's all me, baby. It's all me. Uh, That's and right. I, I got to do it all on my own, kind of. I mean, I have support, of course, but right, right. it's it's super interesting to know that, like, and it, it's a little weird, but it's also empowering. Yeah, that I'm yeah, trusted no, I agree. Yeah, yep. To deep dive on everything, which is cool is. and weird. It is. And that's actually a good segue into talking about my relationship with the designer, because that's also been a super, super interesting thing that I've been reflecting on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um so I, I alluded to it being positive, and so I just want to say that up front, that I yeah, really yeah. like the designer, and good. it's cool. But um, the thing about it is that I have not ever heard of or interacted with this designer before the contract. My very mm -hmm. first interaction with the designer was playing the group game that we played. We played it with three of us, and then I signed the contract the next day, kind of. Um, I signed mm -hmm. the contract later that week. and so I know what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This designer active in totally different circles than what i run in which i thought was it's wild because 
you know, we hear so much about how small the board game design community is. And I agree right, with that. Right. Like, so many people know so many people, and whatever you do, good, bad, ugly, people are going to know about it. Um, and there's a lot of support and a lot of people just like helping each other out. And it's really cool. A lot of networking. And so mm -hmm. it was just astonishing to remember that the bubble of board game design that I'm in is very much still a bubble and not everyone yeah. in the board yeah. game design community. Um, it's interesting, so, right? Um, I, yeah. There are so many people. I mean, I've been doing this for 10 plus years and there are so many designers that I know of that I've never met, even though I've met so many designers. Right. And there are a lot of designers that I'll see a game and be like, oh, I wonder who designed this. And I look and I'm like, I have no idea who that is. And then I look <laughs> and I'm like, they've designed like four or five games that are published, you know? And um, so yep. it, the community is, it's interesting. It's very small and word does get around. Um, but uh, yeah. But it's also it's, very um, big and yeah, growing, yeah. which is so yes. cool. As evidenced by like, so I, I, I just... Um, I have a tendency for Protospiel Online, I have a tendency to put my game listing up like down to the wire, like almost last minute. Back in January, I was entry 1700. In April, I was entry 2100. And just now, I, there are over 3000 entries. I, wow. I was like 3052 or something. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. so cool. It's so cool it's to really see. I love news. it. Yeah. And the uh, the tabletop mentorship program session, uh, this session has over 500 volunteers being mentees and mentors wow that's so good isn't that cool it's so cool yeah. i love it I, it's so great seeing how much the hobby's growing um mm -hmm. and anyway back to my back to talking to this designer specifically mm -hmm. so yeah we've like overall so far we've had like four conversations and it's so it's so interesting again going back to the bubble thing it's like i for a long while especially when I was doing online playtesting, when the online playtesting started and I was just testing it break my game. I did this for like a year, year and a half. I would mm -hmm. start my feedback by saying, hey, just so you know, like we haven't playtested together. I'm on the autism spectrum. Here's what that means for you. Like I sometimes sound accidentally belligerent, but it's just because I'm getting excited about feedback in games. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I am practicing, you know, mixing positive and negative feedback and stuff like that. And so I can kind of accidentally come off aggressive, stuff like that, like giving people disclaimers. And I stopped mm -hmm. doing that um, a little less than a year ago, I think, because it got to the point where I was seeing a lot of the same people. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, I just sort of let it fall out of my brain to do that. And so it was really interesting the first time I did a deep dive into the mechanics with this designer and I'm like, oh yeah, we've never interacted and you have no idea who I am or how I think. And I have no idea how you think. And so it was, it was almost like reading a book in a new language for the first time is how <laughs> I kind of mm -hmm. thought about it. It was very, it was just wild. And it was, and I, it reminded me how invaluable that is to everyone in every hobby to um and it's one of the things that i love the most about when the hobby moved online it's like all of a sudden i'm hanging out not just with designers in boston at the game makers guild i'm also interacting with designers from spain and brazil and japan and canada mm -hmm. and everywhere else in the united states and it's just and that's the kind of stuff that you really have to do if you want to expand your horizons and and build your chops is just like experience those other viewpoints and talk to more people and support people from not just your mm -hmm. own bubble whenever possible um and yeah and it's really interesting too because i am 
very, very new to this game. I have played, I have four games of this game under my belt and I've been working mm-hmm. on it for less than a month. Um, and the designer has been working on it for years and years. And so I'm basically like taking this designer's baby and just altering it at my whim, which is, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm being paid to do. It's what I'm hired for. Um, but it like, it's weird how, and this could be me misreading situations because I do that because I'm on the autism spectrum, but I felt like in every interaction that we've had so far, there's some abrasiveness, not abrasiveness. That's not the word I'm looking for. Like I, every time I make a suggestion that's drastic, like the designer's heckles get raised a little bit and then they have to be like, okay, wait, no, actually, let me think about this more. All right, you make a good point. Okay, I didn't think about this, but mm-hmm. like the first responses are always like, "Ooh, I, I don't know how I feel about that," um, because they've been experiencing the game a certain way for so long, mm-hmm. I think. And I and I'm thinking about this like, you know, at the first one or two times, I'm like, mm, "I don't know if this is gonna go well. I don't know if they trust me to like make." decisions for their game and stuff and then i just thought about it and i was like thinking about this if i handed off fight sequence to a developer and just someone who has never played the game before okay cool develop this game for a couple months and they come up and they're like what if we did any of these 80 things and i have to think about like how would i feel like i've spent thousands upon thousands of hours with this game Mm -hmm. so of course i'm gonna have opinions about someone else's opinions of my game Um, right just thinking about like, you know, trying to make clear what have I tried before that I didn't like and why didn't I like it and all this other stuff and trying to get to the root of. And so that just like it made me pivot into when I start talking to the designer about changes that I want to make. It's less. I think these would be best and more. Have you tried these things? I was thinking X because Y that sort of right. stuff, right. which is really useful and helpful communication yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a small change in language, but I think it, it matters a lot um, yeah. towards getting people's buy-in on things and, and keeping people's hackles down when you first, you know, try and introduce a big change. Um, yeah. I, my thoughts on this, you know, kind of go back to, I do a lot of co-designing and as everybody knows, and and from two different perspectives that I have, one, uh, my friend Ken Franklin had, had said to me, hey, um, I've got this game. I've, I've wanted to get this published for, for years. This is kind of like my grail game and, and I I've been stuck and I need someone to come in and help me, um, figure out how to make it work. Right. So mm-hmm. would you co-design this with me and try and get it across the finish line? And, and what I felt in those cases were my role, well, technically a co-designer was a lot like a developer, right. And the fact yeah. that what yeah. they're asking for is I need a fresh set of eyes um who's not buried in this game as we are with games we worked on as you are obviously with fight sequence right i mean you work at it for so long you you have there's no way that you can't treat it like your baby even if you're willing to make drastic changes you have a lot of opinions and you have all that knowledge that's built up and and Mm -hmm. um so you know so i found we'll go back to that later Mm -hmm. right and and ken and i were able to make drastic changes to his game um, now our game um, very quickly and within a few meetings get to the new version that's now signed. And I mean, it was, it was nice. not, it oh, was, you know, Ken. yeah. So just having that other, you know, help really made a difference. 
Um, and I've experienced the same thing when I bring out a co-designer for a game. I'm generally very focused on what I think they can provide to the game that I'm not able to provide. Um, mm-hmm. Looking for a perspective that's different than mine and then trusting their perspective, right? It's right. easier yeah. when you say, hey, person, co-design this with me. I'm going to trust you. It's harder when you say, hey, person, we have hired this person you don't know, and they're going to tell you <laughs> what's broken with your game and how to fix it. Um, right. And I, I want to just quickly interject and say, I, I feel no malice from the designer of the game. And right. I think oh, it's no, merely I, yeah, the fact I, I get that, it, like, yeah. Yeah, it's merely the fact that, like, you know, trust you, trust takes time to build. And I have to remember that not everyone trusts me immediately because they haven't been interacting with me in the Break My Game server for the past 10 right, or so right. months, stuff like that. There was, um, there's a designer I know who, um, who, there was a publisher who was interested in signing one of their games. And the publisher said, hey, I'm looking at this person's game. I think I'm going to sign it. Or no, they had just signed it. They said, I've just signed this game. Um, what do you know about this designer? You know, I, I felt pretty good about him. The publisher said, um, and I was like, I think they're great. I said, I, I think the one thing I want to prepare you for is when you come to them and say, Hey, I think we should make this change. Um, it may seem like they're resistant, right? It may seem like they're going to say, Ooh, no, I don't like that. I said, but I want to remind you that the reason is, is because I promise you they've already thought of that and or already tried it, right? So mm-hmm. there's a laundry list of, they, they are a thinky designer. They go through every possible scenario. So that resistance is not resistance, but it's experience, right? Got it. Um, and yeah. I think that that's what, and now it's funny because that, that designer and publisher have a great relationship. They've worked together for years and now are, work even more in a developer designer, developer publisher relationship than ever because, you know, nice. and I'm not saying that's because I gave good advice. I'm just, you know, I'm <laughs> it's saying all thanks like, to you, Jason. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm you sure get that no one feedback. remembers me giving that feedback and I'm not trying to say <laughs> that it is, but, but what I think is, I think that's the <laughs> thing you have to remember as that third party coming in is to say, Hey, um, this person, what may seem like resistance is experience. Right. And that's where yep. saying, have you tried this or considered this is a huge, huge change. Then here's what I think we need to do. Right. Because there's nothing yeah. worse when you're doing a job, right? As a person, you've been hired to do a job. And I'm actually talking about the designer in this case, right? And then someone comes in and says, hey, uh, why don't you just do this job a different way? And you're like, because I, I did that and it was <laughs> awful. And here's why, right? Yeah. Um. So I think, yes, you're spot on with changing the wording on that really does open a better dialogue um, for yeah. conversation. And what you can get out of that then is, Okay, so that didn't work for this reason. Oh, but what if we did it this way? And the designer's like, oh, yeah, let's try that. And there, that might be your winning solution, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and that has already happened a couple of times. And I want to stress that, like, I am by no means a, like, social diplomat. I am a kind of a wrecking ball when it comes to conversations. And so the the rephrasing was primarily for myself and it was kind of a happy accident that the designer seems more responsive to it because i had to reframe in my mind how right. i was approaching development and so it's it's a lot of like so this is this ties back into the like i'm being thrown into the deep end with mm-hmm. mentorship and guidance of course but i'm being thrown into the deep end and honestly this is kind of how i prefer it because i'm very much a kinesthetic learner and i i learned by doing 
And so this is me doing and failing and trying again. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This concept of like, I can't just barge in and make changes and expect everyone to be on board the way I can with fight sequence, because with fight sequence, I am the alpha and the omega. Um, with, of course, the caveat that I do have a co-designer who I run everything by, but ultimately everything is up to me. I am the top of the totem pole. And in this right. development gig, I'm not exactly the bottom of the totem pole um, because I am the lead developer, but there are, you know, three powers above me that, well, two powers, two and a half powers above me that have veto power um, over any changes that I make, which is a totally different thing to have to adjust to since this is the first time I've ever been in this situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those differences, I mean, really change your perspective on how you're interacting and what the expectations are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. I think that it's, uh, I think it's, those are always interesting situations. I know that when I first started publisher would be like, Hey, you know, we've got your game now. We think you need some development. How much work do you want to put in? I'm like, I'm all in. Like, I'll do whatever. Like, I want to be, mm -hmm. I, it's my game. I want to, you know, and now if a publisher says, hey, I, we're thinking we need to do development. Would you go be okay if we hired a developer? Yes. Hire a developer. And I want to be clear that it's not because um, I um, am lazy and don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's two reasons. The primary reason is that you want fresh eyes and, and development yes. is different yeah. than design. And we, we know that. Every designer should know that um, you can do both. Um, I've even heard John Gilmore, who is a developer and a designer, look for developers to work on his games because he doesn't want to yep. develop his own game because you want that extra layer looking at it. And the other thing yep. is just a practicality standpoint. You know, when I've signed a game to a publisher, if I'm not being paid as a developer, right, that's time that I'm spending working on that game that I could be working on another game that I could also be trying to pitch to publishers, right? Or mm -hmm. publish myself. And and I think that's worth considering, right? I mean, I think in the board game industry, designers and others do a lot, a lot of um, of unpaid labor, right? Yes, 100%. Um, yeah, and, and some of that is voluntary. I mean, I, I would say that it's pretty much, generally, it's all voluntary, right? But I think yeah. there is some arm twisting that can happen with with certain publishers um, mm -hmm. who I personally would not work with. Um, but, you know, in general, I, I do think that as designers, we do a lot of unpaid work. And so if somebody's willing to pay a developer to do it, then pay a developer. If they don't want to pay a developer, then they should pay you to do it if they want you to do it. Right. Right. That's a total aside. But. You know, you have a paid gig here, and that you know, so I'm sure you agree with that and back that up. Yes. Um, yeah, 100. percent Yeah, yeah. So, those are all my thoughts on the co-designer. I mean, on the uh, developer-designer relationship. Yeah, it's there's a lot of thoughts to go over, and I agree with them all. Uh, they are two different things, and it's it's the sort of thing that I have been thinking about a lot for fight sequence, even where. I'm at the point where I have a small, I don't know how to pronounce this word. I mispronounce it every time. Cadre? Cod? Cod? I think it's cadre. C-A-D-R-E. Yeah. I think it's so cadre, I small, yeah. I have a small cadre. Of, cadre! Uh, yeah, cadre. <laughs> I have a small cadre. I have a party of 
plate of like dedicated enthusiastic playtesters that I can, you know, when I want to plan a game of fight sequence, there, you know, there's like anywhere between six and twelve people that I might be able to tap into for like, I would like to play in two hours or in two days or something. Mm-hmm. And I can generally find someone to test the game with. Um, sometimes I find sometimes two people volunteer and then I just watch them play against each other. And of course there's the online communities. And even that is starting to feel a little bit insular because of their repeated, like, you know, they have great feedback and I love the fact that they love the game so much and it's super, super helpful. It's just, it's sort of like veering into becoming an extension of me having tunnel vision. Um, Mm -hmm. It's much, much better because now there's like 12 of us. Uh, And so when I, when I talk about, stuff in the discord server i have a bunch of people giving me feedback and they all have different experiences and worldviews and stuff which is great but even then i have been considering like do i want to hire a development studio do i want to hire a developer do i want to work with a developer to like help me find these blind spots and right you know look at the game for the first time oh man because oh my gosh i think that now might be a good time to talk about fight sequence progress (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's uh let's roll into that. So for the pitch section today, we're actually going to talk about the progress you've made on fight sequence kind of from a development standpoint of yeah. thinking about it that way. Yeah, uh, cuz again, thinking a lot about You've been very head different... down in that game for a many yes. a year. Yes. And uh several years. Yeah. And you got to come up for air sometimes and and really kind of reconnoiter what you have going on. Oh, another good game. word I don't know how to pronounce I... all the time. Reconnoiter. <laughs> it's one of my favorite words um that uh, I don't get to use very often because if you use it too much, then people are like, why do you keep saying that word? Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly what's going on. All right. And I'm sure, you know, if people have heard me on other episodes, especially the episode where like my first episode, I was talking about fight sequence a number of times in the past year or so, people have asked me how done is the game? How close is done to the game? And of course, there's the element of like, a game is never done. You just have to decide to stop working on it. But even then, I've been feeling really, really confident in like the mechanics of the game and like the cards that I've designed. You know, it's a card game, a bunch of different cards. And so I've been saying stuff like, you know, it's like 95 to 98% done. 99% done is what I've been saying Mm -hmm. a lot. Yep, I've heard you say that a couple times. (laughs) All right, ask me today, how done do I think the game is? And I will say some, oh yeah, yeah. How done do you think the game is? Oh my God, maybe 60%. <laughs> there it is. Oh, it, it, I mean, right. It, you, it, if you're making material changes to the game, it can't be 95% done, right? Like for that yeah. long, right? But yep. But it feels like it is. It feels like it is. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, well, I want to deep dive into it because I think it's a really interesting mm-hmm. subject matter. And I think it ties in a lot yeah. of the stuff that we've talked about already where, yeah, head down in the game you gotta come up for air it's part there's this thing that i realized very recently like in the Mm -hmm. past few days my gut has been trying to tell me some stuff and my brain i let my brain logic me away from my gut and the number one thing that anders the co-designer for fight sequence and my best friend in the whole wide world the number one thing that anders has been trying to hammer home into my brain is to trust my gut more because your gut as a designer, is your most useful tool. And of course, there's an element of having to train it over time. But he has mm-hmm, been trying to get mm-hmm. me to trust my gut more for an, a, 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 
an innumerable amount of years. Um, mm-hmm. So I finally sat down with myself and I was like, all right, gut. More and more, I'm feeling like this is off and little changes that I make have these giant repercussions. And why is that? And I really thought about what am I trying to do with fight sequence? What is the core gameplay experience that I want overall? And then what is the core gameplay experience I want for each character? And I realized all Mm, of them mm -hmm. are a little tiny bit off. In in the cases of characters, pretty off. The main thing is, and it took me a while to realize this, it's like, what is the fun part of fight sequence? Like, what is the fun? What's the hook? And it took me trying to find, like, I finally made a, a sell sheet for the game. And this is what really, like, hammered at home and got me to start thinking about this so even though i'm intending Mm -hmm. to self-publish making a sell sheet to like submit to a pitch contest was an extremely useful exercise so anyone self-publishing i recommend you do it anyway make a sell sheet try to make a sell sheet get the feedback try to make it as if you were pitching the publishers because it's really going to help you think about your game from a different angle so i was thinking about what's the main hook of the game it's not that players are building sequences of actions it's the disrupting them that's the fun part it's I get to mess with your plans because I'm moving actions around or I'm putting them right. back in your hand and now your plans are shot. And yeah, there's the element of every single card can be an attack or a response. And that's like the core of the game. But the really fun parts and the wow moments of the game are those cool things that you can do with the disruption in the game. And I was already sort of halfway designing towards that, like with that in mind. But you know, before this big like overhaul that I'm in the middle of working on, one of the main ways that I was differentiating the characters, like every character is a different style. And I feel very mm-hmm. confident. I feel like it's been a win for a while that the characters all feel different to play. No two characters feel the same, which is good because that's kind of the idea. But one of the main ways that I was like one of the crutches that I was leaning on to make them feel different is how much disruption is in their deck. Mm-hmm. And in the past year, yeah. year and a half, I've also been shifting towards like the disruption looks a different way. And so shifting is the thing, the term for moving things around in the sequence and returning is putting it back in hand. And those are the two main disruption things. And so one character who's like the super aggro psychic kickboxer character has a lot of shifts and they're all really short range. And so they just like, you can assume that they basically always have a shift available, but if they're trying to build combos, which is their idea, like having a bunch of like shift range one, it doesn't matter because they can just move the same thing like in the same spot. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a ton of disruption. It's just the amount. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have Alexandra and her main thing was like, she's sort of like a slower kind of a paladin angel kind of character. And mm-hmm. so her thing was that she has almost no disruption and instead has a bunch of cards that shut off disruption. And so one of the main things is, you know, that's a drastic amount. And Alexandra suffers a lot when fighting against characters with a ton of disruption. Mm -hmm. And that isn't fun. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is shrink the range. So increase the floor and slightly decrease the ceiling of how much disruption characters have while leaning more into the styles of disruption. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so... I've been describing it as I'm adjusting the game such that every character interacts more and prominently with the main hook of the game, which is the disruption. 
mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. for some characters it's requiring a small amount of tweaks and for other characters like alexander it's requiring major reworks to the point where i'm right. considering stuff like that attack trait where it shuts off disruption for three actions in the sequence maybe i just nix that and instead right. just right. give alexander disruption and that's how she fights disruption and maybe right. this like attack trait doesn't exist at all and and that's leading into other things of like, you know, how are the characters interacting and are they meeting the goals that I want them to meet in terms of like how I feel like they fight and play. And mm-hmm. when I think about the game, even a week, two weeks ago, when I play tested with Anders uh, six days ago, and we had this long conversation about this, when I talked about how I was not trusting my gut and the repercussions of that, it's like, yeah, I've kind of been feeling this way for a while, gradually building up. And I just made it a point to shut off listening to my gut, which is mm-hmm. kind of, I won't say a death knell, but it's a very dangerous thing to do. It is. So, it is. Yeah. It, it's interesting because your, your guts, like they you know, they're, I design a lot by spreadsheets, right. For same. initial balancing of games. Right. Yep. But you really do have to, um, it's something John Gilmore once said to me was he's like, the math can be perfect. But if it doesn't feel right, it it doesn't work, right? And that yep. really, you know, it comes back to your gut of, okay, this is mathematically balanced, but it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know? So I actually have a concrete example of that in Fight Sequence where there's, you know, in the, like, the quick demo, there's a bunch of cards with no abilities, vanilla cards. Mm-hmm. And there's always been a like a strict relationship with the vanilla cards of their speed versus their power. And when you add them together, it always equals seven. I mean, the speed oh, is nice. a multiple yeah. of 10. So yeah. it's like the 30 speed is four power and the 20 speed is five power and the 60 speed is one power. And they all have no abilities. And then when you get down specifically to the one that is 10 speed and six power, that as a vanilla card has never worked. And because it just feels too strong, even though it is mathematically the exact same system as the right, other right, right. parts. Yep. And so then it had a drawback and that felt too weak. And now it's just, now it just, uh, it has a, a symmetrical effect. Anyway, I, I don't have to deep dive into it, but that's right. the, that's what I'm saying is like, you, it can be mathematically perfect, but you know, mathematic coin flips are mathematically perfect, but right, that doesn't right. make them fun. <laughs> Nobody that's... is clamoring for a coin flip at the table. There was somebody we had Rob and I had talked to a long time ago who had talked about taking your game because this is what I think this is my like, you know, having never played your game and only hearing you talk about it and what you just said. Yeah. What I hear is the value of an attack is greater than the value of speed in general. Right. Because if 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 a six if a six power attack is broken at a 10 speed, but a six power you know but the inverse of that is not right so what this designer always talked about was and i'm not trying to make more work for you and i admittedly (laughs) do not do this in most of my games but sometimes i find it a useful exercise and that is you take all of the currency in your game right the actions everything and you figure out how to boil it down to one like what one x is equal to why right um and then you apply that to everything as a base point right so in games with multiple forms of currency and actions it can be a lifesaver because it's a way to balance cards right to say okay if this is um if i've got you know one dollar equals 
two action points, knowing that is really helpful when you're building cards and the cost of actions and things and what your reward is for those. Um, so, so yeah, I do think that that is, um, that's something to think about. And again, I'm not trying to make a bunch more work for you. Uh, yeah, no, I may not be needed, but yeah, I have a, I have a good response to that in the years that I've been working on fight sequence, two separate times, I have tried to formulate the game in that exact way. How much is a point of power worth? How much is a 10 points of speed? Because speed is multiples of 10. How much mm -hmm. is this attack trade? How much is this effect? How much is a shift? How much, how does that change if the shift is a different range? And I, the first time I tried it, shift and return didn't even exist. There wasn't even sequence manipulation. Both times I tried it, my brain broke. The game suffered for it. And Anders said, what are you doing? Just trust your gut. <laughs> Everything. So here's the deal. I really like this advice for certain types of games to establish a baseline. If I'm looking at mm -hmm. Lords of Waterdeep and I'm like, all right, cool. I can go to one of these two spots and get two of the orange cubes or two of the black cubes or one purple cube or one white cube. I, that, Of course, that's easy math. I can clock that. Like, okay, cool. You know, one purple cube or one white cube, they're equal value. And it's equal mm -hmm. to two orange or black cubes. And right, then you right. start looking at the quests and you see how much they fudged it, where it's like, all right, so I have this quest where like, if I'm trying to assign point values, it's like, all right, to complete this quest, it gives me nine victory points at the end of the game and it takes orange, orange, purple, white. And it's like, all right, cool. Mm -hmm. If I do the math here, maybe it's like- You should know how many points you're getting, right? Exactly, yeah. Each orange cube that I spent is a point and a half and a purple or a white cube is three points each. And that works out with the math that it's shown on the board on those basic actions. And then you start looking at stuff and it's like, all right, but think about the opportunity cost of people want the purple and white cubes more, even though there's technically equal ways to get them, people are going to prioritize those purple and white cubes. So mm -hmm. they're not exactly worth exactly double uh, one right, orange right. or black cube. And then you start looking at quests and it's like, all right, so this one, you know, it takes six orange and six black and it's worth 25 points. And then we have this one and it's like three purple and one white and it's worth 21 points. I'm, I don't have the game in front of you. I'm kind of making it up from memory. Right. I've played yeah, it yeah, yeah. a dozen yeah. times or so, but you, you start looking at stuff like that and it's like, no matter how detailed and intricate and perfect the equation is, you are always best served by fudging it. It's always a baseline yep. and yep. not an end all be all of design. And, and um, I agree, actually, what I don't think it should be the end all be all. I mean, I never think that math in a game should be the end all be all, but what it right. does yeah. is it can sometimes teach you why, people aren't like you know like like i've had cards and games where i'm like why aren't they taking this action like this is a good mm -hmm. action why aren't they taking it oh because really this costs more to do this action than it would otherwise and and it's not even like they're doing the math for that some so i'm sure some designers are and who play it but i think a lot of players it just doesn't feel right right you know they're like wait a minute i'm getting a better deal with this so they're doing this other action right um, right. So I think that that is important to consider. But yes, never should should math, in my opinion, be the end all be all. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great place to start. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so the for fight sequence, basically, like, it got me to the point of, well, how do I make a vanilla card? And basically, I have been able to do nothing else with it. <laughs> and have, I mean, that's not true. I do a lot of 
complex math in my brain when I'm working on my spreadsheets. Uh, but a lot of that is a combination of playtesting and gut feel, where it's like, I, I know if I'm going to make a return effect that happens immediately when a card is played, putting it on a 10 or 20 speed card is not going to work nearly as well as putting it on even a 30 speed card because the way right, speed right. works, you have to build uh, higher speeds, equal or higher speeds mm -hmm. until the speed resets via one of the actions. So, right. so yeah. And it's a, so it's like the speed power relationship and what response a card has and what text effects a card has and just the speed and power in general, all of these things interplay such that it's impossible to make an equation to cover everything. And so that's kind of the thing that I'm warning against where very good for like initial costing of stuff, but always look at that player experience and player feel mm -hmm. and how does it feel to play cards and stuff. Yeah. Um, good point. But yeah. Awesome. That's interesting to hear that perspective back on the on fight sequence. Um, looking, yeah. looking at that. I think that sounds great. And I, uh, Wish you luck with with your next round of uh, changes Thanks. on that. I'm I'm extremely optimistic, and I'm just a little bit bummed that it took me this long uh, <laughs> to remember to listen to my gut. <laughs> I would like to tell you, Jamie, that it's going to get better because you're going to be like, as I get more experience, I'll remember these things. But I promise you, you still will, <laughs> you still will not in certain situations, and you will still <laughs> yeah. mess it up um, because. It's just so easy to forget or get distracted by, yeah. you know, oh, no, with this one, I need to do it this way. And then found the oh, dummy. No, <laughs> you got to go back and do this. Uh, I mean, I, I see designers, you know, who've been around for a very long time doing this. You know, we all make those mistakes. Um, and, and sometimes they're not mistakes as much. Right. Sometimes it's just design choices that turn out to need to be tweaked. So, right. yeah. Well, this was a super duper fun discussion. Um, yeah, and, I'm excited um, to look back and like see how different my uh, my experience is like at the end of it all. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. So, um, but listeners, if you have any thoughts or questions, um, join the Discord and and uh, and put mm -hmm. those in the in the show notes. I would love to hear your thoughts um, uh, for Jamie about you know the development stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm just interested to hear what people have uh thoughts about it and uh feel free to send them well wishes as well because uh mm -hmm. it's a big job so uh it's a big job that but i don't gotta envy, do it so, <laughs> so um but listeners <laughs> thanks again for hanging out with us if you want to get in touch with us you can of course go to buildinggamepodcast.com find our link to our discord there you can email us buildinggamepodcast at gmail.com you can find us on the twitter at podcast btg i am at jay slingerland and jamie is at three x rainbow games Mm -hmm. uh, find us there and again come back next week every week the week after that every single week in the world just keep coming back <laughs> 535 more times yeah uh, but until next time good night Bye. building the game building the game with jason and friends with jason and friends building the game building the game with jason and friends with jason and friends the end of the episode that's when it technically ends